Hey everyone, my name is Matt Boyd and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. Sojourn is a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. We hope that this sermon both inspires you and challenges you to live a life of intentionality where you seek to make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our church family, you can go online and check out our website at sojournpdx.org. Enjoy this sermon. Good evening. It's good to see everybody. I recognize you could be any number of places on a Sunday afternoon in Portland when it's 65 degrees outside. If I have to be completely honest, I walked here from my house tonight, and on my walk over, I thought, man, I could just keep walking and go ahead and walk to Wilshire Park and just bask in the sunshine and just enjoy it. And so uh, it's an honor that you all are here with us, and we're glad that you are here with us. Um, As a church, we love the city. Specifically, we love this city. We love the city of Portland. And so if you spend much time with us, you're going to hear us talk a lot about city life and and what it, what it means to be in the city. And so this may sound silly to you, but I feel like it might be a good place to start tonight by defining for you when we say city, what we really are talking about, what we mean. There's two primary things when I think about the city, and those are density and diversity. And if you haven't realized this yet, because I know some of us are somewhat new to the city, if you're doing life in the city, you're going to be surrounded by people, many, many people, everywhere you go. Just look at the houses across the street from our building. They're, they're tightly packed in, which is not the way that I grew up at all. My parents were just here for a couple of weeks. I grew up on six acres of land in a very rural setting. And so when they see the size of my yard, which I think is big for the city, they see a very small patch of grass. And so most likely if you're in the city, you're surrounded by many different people as well, different types of people, people who aren't just like you. And if you're doing life around lots of different people, it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. In fact, sociologists tell us that it's hard to live around lots of different types of people, if you, if you didn't already know that. They actually say it's harder to live in the city than it is to live in any other environment. So congratulations. If, you have, if you're living in the city and you've chosen to live in the city, you have chosen to live in one of the hardest environments there is to live. How's that for encouragement? You've chosen to live in a very challenging, difficult place. Welcome. <laughs> Why is urban living harder than other, any other place? It's because you live around different types of people. And they tell us that people, what do people do? People stress us out, especially when they're different than you. When they have different quirks and different personality traits. You know, maybe you live next to someone who's from a different country, and so they always can kind of smell the food that they're cooking. When we lived in India, naturally, that was more the different culture, but you would smell their spices and things, and it's just not necessarily the smell of home for us and the taste of home. Side note, if you don't like people, don't move into the city, and also don't go into pastoral ministry, because that's a huge part of pastoral ministry is people and dealing with people. And in the city, we deal with lots of different issues that you don't outside the city which is why my parents chose for us to live outside of the city and to be raised in a very rural area and context. They felt like it was safer. I didn't really even grow up in the suburbs. I grew up, like I said, more, more rural, where you could have really is one of everything. We didn't have to share a whole lot of stuff. But in the city, what do you have to deal with? You have to deal with a lot of traffic. If you ever tried to go just from northeast to southeast on a Friday afternoon and and see how long that can take you, that can take you sometimes 45 minutes, which should take you maybe 15. And and like on a Sunday night, it probably would only take you 15 minutes. But during the week, it can take you 45 minutes to get a place that shouldn't take you very long. Uh, It's not helping that Portland keeps lowering our speed limits. We're at 20. I think we're going to be at 15 soon and then 10. Pretty soon we're just going to say, you know what? They convinced me. I'm going to walk everywhere because I can walk faster than I can drive to get there. We have to share a lot. 
We have, I don't even think we have a neighborhood pool in this neighborhood, but maybe, maybe one person has a pool, if that. And so we do have these community centers, Peninsula Park, which is over not too far from here. You know, there's a, a shared pool. Where I grew up, many people had their own pools, and you have a big enough space to put a pool if you want to have your own pool, or your own trampoline, or your own swing set. Here we go to neighborhood parks, and we have to share those things with others, because there's not enough space. As a husband and father of three, I actually believe it's good to raise your family in the city. Although it's not how I was raised, and I respect how my parents chose to raise me. I'm raising my own children and my, and, and, and my family in a very different way. And why do I believe it's good? I believe it's good to expose them to the density and diversity that we get in the city. And you know what you find when you get a lot more people is you see a lot more sin and you find a lot more brokenness. But I believe it cultivates a relationship for discipleship. I get to expose, well, my kids are exposed, not that I'm exposed, and they're exposed to things I wasn't exposed to until in some cases an adult. And as they're exposed to these things, I get to walk alongside of them and disciple them in these things. The challenges of the city are vast. And I know we have some people that are coming from Gresham, um, sometimes from Southeast Portland, occasionally people even from Beaverton. And what this means is that in a city like ours, you're going to experience the pains of city life. That may be small ways, like uh, fr- uh, frequently there's going to be heavy traffic. And you're going to say, I'm leaving at this time. I know it should only take me that long to get there. And then there's gonna, you're going to watch Google Maps as it adds five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. And before you know, you've doubled your time to get to a place. You've experienced that. You see the red, the red line the entire way when you're trying to go somewhere else in the city. But then at times, we also experience the more extreme forms of the city of, of pain, such as things as, as uh, racial equity or the lack thereof, or racial equality or the lack thereof, and, and, and forms of racism. So tonight, we're going to continue our series looking at the letter of Ephesians, what we've been calling United in Christ. And in our set of verses tonight, we're going to see that Paul is going to present the problem for us. He's then going to present the solution for us. And then he's going to present action steps by telling us actually how we are to respond. And Paul's going to start by acknowledging the problem that every single one of us face. Every single one of us face dysfunctions within our relationships. If you are a human being, which I assume all of you are, you have some form of relationships. Even if you're an introvert, you have, if you have a spouse or if you have a brother or sister or parent, you have some kind of relationships. You have co-workers. And we all experience dysfunction within these relationships. If you weren't with us last week, we talked about the disease that we all carry with us. And this disease is called sin. None of us get around it. We all have it. I know sin is not a popular term. It can actually be a loaded term saying, what do do you mean by that? Are you accusing me of something? Don't worry. I'm in the boat with you. But last week we looked at how we're all sinners. And the most important thing for us to understand about sin is that sin is what separates us from God and then also separates us from one another, which is what really causes and creates the dysfunction in our relationships. And don't think of it so much as breaking God's rules. I think a lot of times when you're sin, we just think about all these rules and, okay, well, maybe I've broken some of those. So don't think about it even in those terms. Think about it as rejecting the rule giver himself. That's ultimately what we did with sin. And we broke that relationship with God. And what Paul is going to show us tonight, that this disease, it doesn't only separate us from God, but it also separates us from one another. That's why we have these pains. This is why we experience the things that we do within relationships. You can probably relate. I've got many relationships over the years that were going fine. It seemed like we were hitting cruise control. And then it seemed like suddenly something came in and, and caused a friction in that relationship. Some of those, unfortunately, still haven't even been repaired. And I say, what, what happened to those? Well, it's because there's dysfunction. You've got two sinners who are, who are relating to one another. A former pastor of mine used to talk about how him and his wife, their first year of marriage was really, really tough. And so newly married couples, you guys maybe can relate to this or maybe 
you've had a breeze this first year, but he said they had to come to a place where they realized that he said for him it was that he was first sinner and he was second sinned against. And so in, within the marriage uh, relationship and within the conflict going, well, I had to realize that I was first a sinner before my, accusing my wife of being a sinner. And then I also was sinned against by another sinner. And you see, sin doesn't only have a vertical dimension. It's not only separating us from, from God, but it also has a horizontal dimension as it alienates us from other people and really separates us in that way as well. So go ahead and look with me at Ephesians 2. If you have your Bibles with you, if not, we have some blue ones in the back, or if you have it on your phone, swipe up. And Ephesians 2, we'll start in verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. My guess is, just starting out in these first couple of verses, it doesn't immediately seem relevant to us today. He's talking about circumcision and uncircumcision, which, although it doesn't seem relevant, I think there was a Netflix documentary recently. I know there's been a, actually been a lot of talk about circumcision and whether it should be illegal and not. So, although it's, but it doesn't seem that relevant to us. I don't think we sit around debating, is it okay or not okay? And I mean, we had to take that decision as parents with our own children. So it doesn't seem that relevant. But that's not really what Paul's point is here. What Paul's doing in the front is he's recognizing there's generally two types of people in Ephesus, which is the audience that he's talking to here. Remember, Ephesus is one of the leading cities in the Roman Empire at the time. And he's saying there are those people who are circumcised and there are those people who are uncircumcised. And this is another way to say there are Jewish people and there are Gentile people, which maybe you're familiar with that. And so really that's what those, that, that's representing, is circumcised and uncircumcised. There's Jewish people and there's Gentile people. Jewish meant you were born to the nation of Israel and that you followed the Old Testament law. In other words, you were a religious person. You, you follow the law, you follow the rules. And then if you were a Gentile, you're everybody else, which would include all of us in this room tonight, unless I've missed that someone in here is actually Jewish background, and, and I apologize. So calling someone uncircumcised this time was really, in some ways, it was derogatory. You know, if it was a Jewish person, you, you are uncircumcised. In other words, you are not one of the ones that have been, been called out and, and, in a sense, kind of chosen by God, is what they were saying there. And so it signified that you were outside of being a part of the covenant of God's people. And so really, it was, it was an insult. And so Paul begins a section with the conjunction. He says, therefore, which you've probably heard before. If they see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is the word therefore? It's urging his readers to recall both their former life and their former situation as those that were separated from God and the subsequent, subsequent grace that they have received in light of those truths. So he's really kind of pulling back from the verses last week as well, saying, remember, at one time you were separated from God, but God had grace. Remember, by, by grace you have been saved. And so he's saying, remember those things. And why, why does he start this way? He is calling them to remember their former way of life so that as they go forward, they may live with a greater sense of gratitude to God and a greater love for one another. And so as Paul recognizes, there's two types of people, and he's recognizing there's indeed a conflict happening between them. He's not ignoring it. He's not pretending that everything is okay. That's, that's what I think we're guilty of a lot of times, at least in my family, when things weren't really okay. And even as an adult, we still deal with this. My wife's the one who points this out, that things aren't okay with your siblings and with your parents. But we kind of gloss over, like, everything's all right. We don't want anyone else to know we have any, any issues, anything going on. And so that's what he's saying here. Is he's recognizing there, there is a problem here. There are, there, there are two groups, and they're having conflict with one another. And my guess is that none of us in this room would view the world in these two categories. I don't think we would go around and say, there's Jewish people and there's Gentile people. I, I really doubt any of us view the world that way. But we do view the world by categories. 
I, don't, I doubt there's any of us in here that actually do not categorize the world by different categories. We do this on a global level, especially as Americans, and we tell the rest of the world very arrogantly that we are the best, the United States of America. There's a, you know, you want to come here, and, and we're the best. We always win the Olympics. We get more medals than anybody else, and we do all these things. You can imagine the conversations that we have in my household, considering my wife is not U.S. born, and, and which country is the best. We do this on a regional level. Uh, we tell everyone that Pacific Northwest is the best region of the country. Look at us. There, you know, the PNW, hashtag PNW Wonderland. Like, there's a reason people want to come here. Look at our beautiful trees. We have mountains. We have the coast. We have great food. We have great coffee. This is the best region in the country, despite the amount of rainy days we receive, because then we get nice days like the one we're having today. And then summer's coming, everybody. Summer is coming. And then we do this on a state level. We see t-shirts that say, Oregon is above California. And so we're kind of taking a jab, which one, there's a ton of transplants from California. That's part of it. But we're taking a jab saying, yes, Oregon is better than California. We do this on a city level, where we hate everything and anything that is suburban. So please don't ask me to drive to the west side of Portland. If you live in Beaverton, no thanks. I don't want to be your friend. Not really. I will be your friend. But there's such a divide with that river between east side and really the suburbs. There's the city and then there's, there's the suburbs. And, and those two don't always relate with one another. We see it with politically. We have two polar opposite extremes. We have Democrats and we have Republicans, which are really redefining what, what those terms even mean right now. There are people who run to conflict, and there's people who run away from conflict. You know the type of people, let's keep everything, you know, the peacemakers. Let's keep everything peaceful. And then you got people, it just seems like every time you turn around, they're ready to get in a fight with you. They want to argue, and you take a step back and realize they actually enjoy this. And so they're running to conflict. You have those who love a clean kitchen, and then you have the people who could care less if they leave the dishes overnight and go to the next day. I happen to live in a house where we like to have a clean kitchen. And so rule is we don't go to bed or really watch Netflix or do anything else until the kitchen is clean. And mom is happy. Other people, and maybe that's some of you, say, well, I care less. It'll be, it'll be like that all week long. And so we don't necessarily break the world down into these two categories of Jewish and Gentile, but we do break it down into something. We do break it down into, into different categories in our own mind. And the more I talk with people, there's this common theme. And that everyone would agree there is a problem. There's problems in the world. And even breaking ourselves into these two broad categories, we easily start building these walls and accusing people of different things. That's why I'm very careful about what terms I attach to my name and even use. I even have to, at times, redefine what is meant by the term Christian. I had a friend I was having lunch with recently, and, and for him, he said, you know, a Christian is someone who doesn't welcome refugees. You don't care that children are being separated from the families at the border. And I just stopped him and said, listen, if that's how you define Christian, and I am not a Christian. I am a Christ follower, but if that's how you're defining Christian, that is not me. And so we have to be careful about what terms we attach to our names because people are categorizing us in different ways. And it's easy to think this way. We all do it, if we're just honest. We, we all see someone, whether it's the clothing they're wearing or just how they come across, and we can categorize them in a certain way. But we're never going to receive healing from really what this stems from is a brokenness if we always believe that it's other people who need to change and make things better. Think about your own life. Maybe it's at work or maybe it's at school. If you find yourself always saying, if those people would just do this and if they would just change and if they would just do these things, life would be made better. Maybe it's, maybe it's your spouse. They think, man, if my spouse would do this, my life and our marriage would just go to the next level. But let's take a self-inspection tonight and see where it is that, that we need to change. Where is it that you need to change tonight? Instead of thinking your job would be better because your coworkers would change, start thinking about how might you need to change so that you can make the work environment better, so that you can make your team better. Every time I talk to college students, to millennials, to baby boomers, 
people my parents' age, in case we're not sure who baby boomers are, there's none in the room tonight, <laughs> they all recognize that there's this grand problem of relationships. And they recognize things are not how they should be. Our relationships are not the way they should be. But everyone tends to think that they're never part of the problem, that it's always somebody else. I tell people all the time, it doesn't seem to matter what age, but especially millennials and Gen Z, that, man, there's just no community. I just can't find community. And so there is, there is part of that. I say, well, okay, we like, you know, sojourn. We want to provide community for people. But then I also wonder, are, are, are you not pressing into community? It, you know, it's kind of a give and take. And Paul wants us to understand tonight, we have a problem. That's where he's starting. We have a problem. And the problem is that we were ultimately hopeless and helpless and in a godless state pre-Christ, before we, had, before we were in Christ and under Christ's banner. But we're going to see a dramatic shift here with a statement, but now, which is similar to last week. If you were here last week, it was but God, and that really changed the whole trajectory. We said but God, and tonight's statement is going to be but now. And Paul says, based on the Ephesians' union with Christ, this is what changed their status and completely reversed things for them. So what we'll see here is that Paul not only recognizes the problem, but he's now going to offer the solution to the problem. So he's recognized the problem. There's a problem. There's these, these two groups. They're in conflict. But now, let's look at, at the solution to the problem. He says, but now, starting verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So previously, there were two general classifications of people that we saw in verse 11, the Jews and the Gentiles. But these classifications have been transcended by an entirely new identity in Christ, which we could broadly say the church of God. And what does Paul say is the solution? He says the solution here is in the end of this verse, he said it's the blood of Christ. This is the ultimate solution to these categories. In this context, what it was originally written to is the Jews and the Gentiles. Christ's blood, what is known as his substitutionary death, I know it's a big word, it means that he has died for all mankind, all of the sheep, not just the Jews. And so Christ said, I came for all people, I came for all mankind. That's really good news for us, because once again, there's no Jews in the room. So us Gentiles, including us, Christ came for us. His, his blood was spilled for us as well. He leveled the playing field on the cross. He says there's no one group elevated above the other. Both Jews and Gentiles have the same hope in Christ's atoning death. And Paul is saying that there's hope for the relational dysfunction in the gospel. It is only by the gospel that our relationships can be restored. Through his life, through his death, and through the resurrection of Jesus. I like how Tony Merida describes it by saying, Experientially, we encounter the effect of the cross by our union with Christ. In other words, the cross is central. The cross is central throughout all of this. To be restored to God, absolutely, but then also to be restored to one another. And Paul points out that in Christ, we're able to experience peace with both God and one another as Christ is our peace. And so God has now united, that's what we're calling this United in Christ, our whole series. God has now united what was once divided in the Jews and the Gentiles. As I read through different commentaries this week on preparation for this night, for this sermon, many of them pointed to the hostility that was there between Jews and Gentiles. I think today we read this, a modern day audience, and we hear, okay, these are two different groups, they had some different cultural things, and probably ate different foods, and there were some different cultural norms, but I don't think we really grasped how deep this, this, really this hatred went towards one another. Now, we have a racial problem in our, our own culture. We continue to have a racial problem, unfortunately. But based on what I read this week, our racial tensions do not come anything close to the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. So let, let that sink in, how deep this was. I know it's hard for our minds to grasp, but this, this was deep hatred toward one another. But what we see is that Christ, He quenches this hostility by His death on the cross, and He enables the unity of two groups 
that were at one time hostile towards one another. So imagine these two opposing groups. Let's just take the aisle tonight. And let's just say we got Jews on this side, congratulations, and we got Gentiles on this side, but then Christ comes in and says, now you're all equal. So at one point, you guys would meet and, and you would not want to interact at all. Don't touch me, don't get near me. But all of a sudden, now the, the two have become one. So let's just say we, we close this gap here and now you guys can inter, interact and mingle with one another because under the banner of Jesus, you have been united. And the Ephesian Christians are encouraged here to remember their past situation. Now, as Paul is reminding them of their present reality, he says, Christ is our peace. Where is this peace that comes in? Was it one day their leaders got together and said, we need to figure this out. Let's draw up a contract as we see government officials do. No, Christ is their peace. And peace is really the theme of this section here in this set of verses. And we'll see peace occurs four different times. It's a reminder that Christ not only brings peace, but Christ is peace himself. So maybe tonight you find yourself saying, I'm not at, at peace in my soul, in my life. I just don't know what's happening, what's going on. Christ is our peace and Christ can be your peace. What is the result and consequence of the peace that Paul refers to here? Christ has made both Jewish and Gentile believers one in himself. We were able to experience this one on some level in India. So in India, if you know much about their culture, they have a caste system. Now, it's, it's outlawed. It's been illegal for years now. But every single Indian you meet, they know exactly what caste they came from. And they know whether they're high caste or a low caste or a middle caste. And so we, had, we met people who basically their caste says, you will never be better than this. And so we met people who were street sweepers. And their caste said, you know, in, in the U.S., you, you think, come and get an education, do all these things, you can get past that. They're, just, they're told that and they believe it. This is all I'll ever be good at. And then there are other people who are high caste. So that's why you'll see slums, some of the poorest and the poor of the world, next to high-rise buildings because they do not mix with one another. But as we ministered there and as we made disciples there and as we planted churches there, we were able to see Indian believers, and it wasn't always easy, but we were able to see Indian believers worship alongside of one another where at one time they would not. I've probably used this example before, but we're actually going to take communion later tonight ourselves. And so I remember teaching on communion one time. I had a group of leaders and I was explaining to them um, just kind of the method and, and how you do it and where we get the practice from. And part of our conversation was, can you use milk? Can you use chai tea if we don't have wine or juice in the village? And can you use roti, kind of flat Indian bread? But then the conversation revolved around, uh, do we do it in little cups? Some of you probably experienced little plastic cups. Or do we dip it in a, a, a big old glass? Or, or what, what do we do there? And in Argentina, where we're from, they, they drink from one glass and then they share it. So you always want to be the first person at communion in Argentina. Otherwise, you get a lot of germs, flu season, does not go well for the people in the back of the line. But they do it that way. So I said, is that permissible? And they all went, no. I said, why not? They said, because if the person next to me is from a different caste, I don't want to get, basically, I don't want to, not their, not their germs because of getting flu, but I don't want to get that caste on me. And that was the one time that I remember almost interjecting. I usually try to let the Bible speak and God speak, but I thought, man, I'm just going to say this is the way that you need to do it because this is what the gospel is representing here is we've got to break down those walls. And Christ said, no, we're all equal. And so that is at least the encouragement I gave them. I said, you're not, I'm, saying, I'm not saying you have to do it this way, but that is not viewing it with the lens of the gospel. And what this means for us today is that Christ is broken down in his flesh through the cross, the dividing wall of hostility between different groups of people. So while the blood of God reconciles us to God, it also reconciles us to one another. This is why a sojourn can say family. This is why we want to be family to one another. It's not because we're going to have a perfect relationship all the time. I know I do things that, that you guys don't always like, and you do things I don't always like. But through Christ and through his blood shed, we can have a reconciled relationship and we can be family to one another. And so Christ brings unity in the midst of where there should be utter chaos and continues to be the utter chaos when operating in our flesh. This is why the world, to me, we should be a picture that the world around us can be confused by. 
The world should look at the church broadly, not just sojourn, but all churches and say, man, there's something weird because those people all get along, but they shouldn't all get along. It should be, eventually the church should be full. Hopefully our room will be full of people that you would look at us and think, man, that's a, that's a misfit group of people. Like they don't just naturally belong together. They have different hobbies and activities and different personalities and, and different races and all these things. But that is a beautiful picture of the church. He continues in verse 15. He says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he says that Christ abolished the Jewish ceremonial law. He rendered it powerless, and then Christ fulfilled the moral law, keeping all the requirements, and he removed it as the means of condemnation. If you ever found yourself saying, I, I can't meet these, these requirements, this law, this thing about the Ten Commandments, you're familiar with those? I, I always fail to attain to all of those. Well, Christ fulfilled all of that for us. Christ abolished the law for two reasons. The first is in order to create in himself one new man in the place of two, resulting in this peace that Paul is referring to here. Second, Christ set aside the law so that he might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross. The result is a new man. Really, the result is a new human race. That's why it says, don't identify yourself as Jew. Don't identify yourself as Gentile. There's one new human race under Jesus. We're all united under the second Adam, in whose image we as Christians are recreated. So we see here that Christ brought two parties together into a peaceful relationship to satisfy God's wrath against his enemies. And now we see that they're friends in one unified body, and the hostility between them has been killed. In verse 17, it says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The gospel, proclamation, the, the gospel message is a proclamation of peace between God and fallen humanity. This allows for peace between God and man. That's, that's the, the ultimate. But then this also consequently leads to peace between two varying different groups. Here it was Jews and Gentiles, which today would translate as peace between all people. We live in a day where we build fences. Well, really where we build walls. Look at our own government. I don't have time to get in that. I'm not trying to be political. But this is not what the gospel does. The cross of Christ tears down fences and walls and it brings unity. There's a lot of tension around race in our culture and in our, in our country, in our, in our city. Even today, 154 years after slavery was abolished. Now, I know many of us are new to Oregon, but in case you don't know the history of our own state and city, Oregon was one of the most racist places in the country. Portland was one of the most racist places in the country. Even though slavery was abolished in 1865, Oregon kept many of their what they called black exclusion laws, and the last one weren't abolished until 1926, many, many years after slavery was abolished. And so if you've ever wondered why there's so many racial tension in, in our own city, this is part of it. It stems from a lot of this. And what this passage is showing us tonight is that there are at least there are there are two categories. But these categories may not be how you think. They're not. They're not black and white. The category is not Republican and Democrat. But the two categories are those who have received God's grace and those who have not received God's grace. And we don't pass judgment if they haven't received God's grace because the decision is ultimately God's over your life. But we pray that those who have not embraced God's grace are humbled and that He creates a hunger within them. That's my prayer for the city around us, that God would create this hunger within them so that people can experience and embrace the grace of Jesus. Racism among believers in any form is never justified and it must be resisted. We of all groups of people should be known as those that stand against racism and where you don't find racism. Unfortunately, in many churches, that's not the case. But as long as I'm in leadership at Sojourn Church, you will not find that here. You guys will have to kick me out or fire me first. 
And we put a high value on diversity. And you might think, well, we don't really reflect that. Well, one, we're, we're new and we're really small, but that is one of the goals that we're attaining to. Currently, we're actually probably on par with the national average, which I know might seem kind of sad, but that's, that's probably where we are. We're probably on par with the national average right now. But we value diversity in all forms, not just, not just ethnic diversity, not just racially, but all forms. Diversity in the church is a glorious demonstration of the work of Christ. He tells us in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3.11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Just a few days ago, we learned of a horrific terrorist attack that happened in New Zealand at a mosque where 50 people, last count I saw, 50 people were murdered. Specific details are still coming out, so I'm not trying to be speculative, but from early reports, it appears that this was in part racially motivated. Some hatred that was happening inside of this individual's life. But because of passages like this one, because of Christ, we of all people should be ultimately opposed to a horrific tragedy like this one. That should be our response. So we should be horrified by what took place there. We believe that all lives matter. That includes Muslim lives. White supremacy is wicked and evil, and there's only one cure, as with all sins, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And only Christ can take away the hatred in a heart and replace it with a heart of love. So this individual had a lot of hatred. Clearly, a lot of hatred built up. And there's only one cure for that hatred. Look at verse 18. He says, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So by drawing near to God and enjoying Him forever is the greatest, food, greatest good. It's the ultimate accomplishment of Christ's earthly work of redemption as we are now one in Spirit. We now get to live out our identity, not as, as strangers and aliens. That's what we once were. You were a stranger and alien, but now you're no longer stranger and alien, but now you're saints. Remember the very beginning of Ephesians. He calls us saints, and now we're members of God's family. The thing about strangers is they have no rights or privileges. Why? Because they're a stranger. If a stranger walks into your house tonight and just starts opening your kitchen cabinets or, or says, hey, I'm just going to go take a nap on your couch, right? you're going to kick them out. You're going to call the police on them. Or if you have a gun, you're probably going to pull the gun out. Because a stranger has no rights at all. So that's where we had one time found ourselves. Think about aliens, not the sci-fi type, but those who aren't citizens, they have limited access and privileges. And so strangers and aliens describe the status of all of us at one time. At, all, at one time, all of us were strangers, all of us were aliens, but he's saying now that we are all citizens in God's heavenly kingdom. When Andrea and I first got married, we had to go through a very long process to get her to the U.S. legally. And eventually she got a green card, and eventually she got a permanent resident card. Well, she did have some rights and privileges, but they were very limited. There was many things that she could not do. And, and then eventually she became a U.S. citizen, and because she recognized the better country. Just kidding. Um, she became a U.S. citizen, and now all of a sudden she had the full protections of rights that just like all of us who were born in the U.S. have. But uh, that was a process. So she eventually came in, and you know she was kind of the, this outside. And then eventually when she went through the process, she became a full-blown citizen. And because of the reconciliation offered in Christ, all of us who were once described as strangers and aliens, now we're part of God's family. Once again, this is why we value the word family here so much, because we're part of God's family. It's God who's united us and reconciled us all to one another. R. Kent Hughes says, The horizontal relational implications of our being God's family are beautiful. Family is the place where you can be yourself and be assured you are accepted. That's what we're trying to create here. You can be yourself with all your flaws and all your imperfections, but that you can be accepted. 
And so it's not even so much that people are no longer refugees and now citizens, but they've really been made into this new community and it's described best as family. Tony Marita says it this way, The church is not a building that we go to or an event that we attend. The church is a family living life on mission. Be careful not to treat the church as a hotel, a visiting place that you go to occasionally, giving a tip if you are served well. Rather, see the church as part of your Christian identity and understand we all have a role in God's household. I think as I study Ephesians, more and more. There's, there's a lot of debate amongst my, my believing friends, my Christian friends, leaders. Is the church important? Is the church necessary? And as I'm studying Ephesians, I keep texting these guys saying, we can't get away from the bride of Christ. We can't get away from the body of Christ. Yes, Christ is the head, but there's a, there's a purpose in the church. And so if anything, this has caused me to push in further, say, no, the church is part of the plan. It can't be just, I'm going to go walk solo with Jesus, because that is not how it was designed. He says this family, starting to look at verse 20, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the, by the Spirit. So we see that this family is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the truth that they proclaimed, which became foundational to our faith because many of the words that we're reading, many of the, the books, the New Testament, those were words from the apostles. And so Paul says, those that were at one time strangers and refugees are not described as that any longer, but now we're actually building blocks for God's holy temple. We, we are part of it. Once again, we're the church that's being built up with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. And we become a dwelling place for God when we embrace the unity that Christ brings and the unity that only He can bring. And belonging to a visible church is not really optional for followers of Jesus. Those united with Christ make up the stones in the spiritual temple, which is made up of three, three elements. The first element is the foundation. It's built on the apostles and prophets. The second is the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself, it tells us, is the cornerstone of the church. And then the building blocks is us. That's, that's his, his body. We are the building blocks. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? Like, I am one of the building blocks of Christ's church, of how Christ, how God designed it to be. And this temple is the dwelling place of God. That's why the church is not a building, but the church is the people of God. So tonight, with it being such nice weather, if we had known in advance, maybe we would have had a church outside at the park. And that wouldn't have changed the fact whether we're in a stamp building or my house or under a tree or in your yard. Because it's the body, it's the people that make up the church. And we are those building blocks that Christ uses. It's healthy for us to remember where you've come from. We all have a story. We all have a past. But it's just as important to remember where we are now by God's grace. The passage tonight has emphasized reconciliation, both vertical with God, but then horizontal with other believers. God's story in this passage is larger than reconciliation between Jews and Greeks, although that is a big part of it for this context when it was really written. The larger story we find in Ephesians is his grand plan to bring unity to all things, all things in heaven and all things on earth, under the Lordship of Christ Jesus. Tony Marita in his commentary on Ephesians brings out some great applications for, uh, application points for us by pointing to this passage, is that Christ wants to create a people. Christ isn't in the business of creating isolated individuals, but he's creating a people for himself. Really, he's creating a family. And so he says, belonging to a local church should be more important to you than where you go to school, where you work, or what club you belong to. That is not the popular opinion in our day. Not at all. People value their club, their school, their gym, everything else over belonging to a church. 
But what we see here is that that is not the root. It really should be the reverse order. The New Testament assumes that every Christian is part of a local church. And my point is that we cannot read this passage and we can and ignore the importance placed on the church. It's really what the, what the book of Ephesians is about. It's a letter to the church in Ephesus, but really it's a, a, a letter to us. It's a letter to the church in Portland. It's a letter to the church at Sojourn. And why is it? This is how God intends us to live out our faith and love for one another within the context of community, what we refer to as family. This is how God has designed it. You know, you th- I think a lot of people, Matt just came up with gospel family mission. No, that whole family piece, that came from a conviction as I read in Scripture and I see in the New Testament. And what we see tonight is there are two broad categories of people. But you know what? Both groups needed Jesus. Both groups needed to experience the grace of Jesus. So regardless of your background, regardless of your culture, where you grew up, you need Jesus. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the city, if you grew up rural, you need Jesus. I don't care if you're raised in a Christian home and in church, you went to Sunday school every Sunday. You still need Jesus. None of us get a leg up on anyone else. I think sometimes we look at our environment and we think that kind of gives us a leg up over other people. To say, well, you know, God's going to accept me because of this. You'll meet people who, who maybe have a church background, who grew up in church. They, they've got nothing to do with, with God or church, but they still think, well, I'm okay because I've got this in my back pocket. It's like my ace of spades. You know, I've got, I've got the card, I'm going to throw it down, and God's going to say, you're good. You went to church all your life. No, that's not how it works. You need grace just as much as the person who never went to church in their life. But the good news is that Jesus has come for all people. As this church grows, I pray sincerely that we continue to diversify. Because that is a proclamation to the message of Jesus being for all people. I want us to be a church made up of all ages, old people, young people, babies, teenagers, white people, black people, Asian people, Spanish people, hipsters, whatever the opposite of hipsters is. I guess we're in Abercrombie. You know, all these different categories. Like, I want us to be made up of those people. That we are a diverse church and that people say, this is, this is strange for, for an outsider to walk in, but then realize, wow, this is such a beautiful picture. The church of all places should be the most diversified place in the city. And here's the thing with our city. Our city is starting to value this. And they're starting to seek this. We've got some relationships with some of our partnerships, well, I won't name, but they're going through some very difficult conversations right now. And it's, I'm, I'm walking this fine line trying to explain to them. Actually, almost, I thought about inviting some of these people tonight or even sharing, hey, I know that you don't believe in the Bible, but the passage that I'm preaching from this weekend really talks to what it is that you value and what you want. But you know what? The culture around us misses the key ingredient. It's, it's great that our city is attaining to have racial equity and, and all of these types of things, but they're missing a key ingredient. They don't have Jesus. They don't have the cornerstone who unites all things. So ultimately, their attempts are going to fail. It's a great value, and I can affirm them in that, and I'm doing my best to help navigate the conversation, but I firmly believe that they're going to fail every single time because they are lacking Jesus. If we're going to be a family here at Sojourn, we have to stretch our values of what's right or wrong. I think sometimes we come in, we've got different church backgrounds here, we have no church backgrounds here, but sometimes we come in and we, we, we judge things and base things on categories based on our background. And a lot of times it's just cultural. So sometimes that might be my preaching. You might think he doesn't preach the way that my, my former pastor preaches. Or he preaches too long or he preaches too short or he uses an iPad and he, his Bible's sitting behind him. Like There might be those things. Those are cultural things. And part of that you just need to get over. You might be our worship. You might think, man, there's only a keyboard. Where's the guitar player and the drums and the bass? And if you play those instruments, please come see us because we need you and we want you. But those, that's just cultural. Maybe you sang old school hymns growing up and we're going to sing some of those. Or maybe you're a person who just loves Hillsong. Some of those are just cultural. And when you're family, you have to compromise with one another. Maybe it's the way that we do communion. Maybe we do it too frequently for you. Maybe we don't do it frequently enough. 
Or maybe, maybe you wish that we did it a different way. And those are just some small examples. But there's many things like that that I think is a church forming and a diversifying. We're going to have to stretch different things. Not our, not our biblical values, but some of those cultural ones. I'm in a cross-cultural marriage. And so we've had a, that's been the 12 years of marriage. It's saying, it's okay that you did dishes that way growing up or you cooked this way, but we're going to have to change some of these things. And then I've had to give and take. And that's something we're going to have to do as we diversify as a church. We want to be a church that's diverse in every way, but we're not there yet. And I desperately hope and pray that we get there. This is something, once again, that we value. And we love proclaiming the supremacy of Christ, and we hope that we can do that through our diversity. So I've got some action steps for us as I close tonight. First action step is that realize that we're all guests at the table of Jesus. None of us are ushers. In other words, none of us have arrived. That, that we all found ourselves in the same place. I think sometimes when new people will interact with, with church, that's why people feel they have to clean themselves up because they feel like you're way out ahead of them. And so regardless, as new people would start to join us and come in and say, man, we've all, we all came from the same exact place. We all came from the same exact filth. And we are all guests because of what Jesus has done. The second action step is repent of any sins that maybe you've committed against another race or a people group. A lot of times I think we do that either unknowingly or maybe it's just out of ignorance. And you think, you know what? I didn't realize, but that was, that was actually wrong of me to think that or to say that. I'll be transparent. I found myself there having just a thought pop in my head and then realize, wow, that's wrong. That is not, it. That, that is not how I should respond. And then the third action step is welcome everyone as Christ has welcomed us. And so I know our city is keep Portland weird. And so the reality is we're a weird city. We've got a lot of different people, people and people look weird. If you're not from here, especially, you'll, you'll look at people in, in different ways. But we need to welcome everyone as Christ has welcomed us with love and with open arms and providing a place for them where they can belong on their way to belief and embrace Jesus and this message of grace that he offers. So here's where we're going to respond tonight. We're going to respond by the Lord's Supper because I believe the Lord's Supper is a powerful testimony to us of unity and the unity that Paul is talking about here. We all come as repentant sinners to the same Savior and we share the same hope as we are family. There are no distinctions. Your race doesn't matter. Your class doesn't matter. What matters is Christ's blood reconciling us to God and to one another. This togetherness is also a powerful sign of what's to come. And so the Lord's Supper is the sign of the Messianic reign and the foretest of the future. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. And if Mandy wants to play something or if we want to put some music in the background, we can. If not, that's okay. But I'm going to pray for us. And then we will take of the Lord's Supper. And so we have gluten-free crackers on the right. That should be very obvious. And then we have the loaf of bread on the left. And so for those of you who take from the bread, when you break that piece off, just remember it's symbolizing Christ's broken body for you. And as you dip it into the juice or the wine, His spilt blood for you, which we have wine on the left and juice on the right. So whichever one you're most comfortable with. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to our sermons podcast. We are a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. If you'd like to learn more about what God is doing in our lives, reach out to us by emailing info at sojournpdx.org or check out our website. We look forward to hearing from you soon.